There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kramitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch with Greg Kraminski and Colin Andrews. Greg, today we're going to be talking about factor investing, but let's recap a little bit about what we talked about last week. So last week we dug into the debate, and it's a long debate and a historical one on active versus passive investing strategies. And we also talked about the introduction of exchange-traded funds, and how those relate to those active and passive trading strategies. And as a reminder, we also discussed how things that might appear to be passive aren't actually passive. And we talked about things like leveraged ETFs and the idea of an ETF constructed for passive reasons, but then it's been changed. So today we're going to dig into what we call factors of return and what they are, the history of the concept, and also talk a little bit about style drift. Talking about factor investing and factors of return, the first effort to explain stock returns or expected returns was put forward by William Sharp back in 1964. And William Sharp developed what's called the capital asset pricing model, and for which he later earned a Nobel Prize, I think, in 1990. So the capital asset pricing model was what we call a single factor model, where the expected returns were based on the market beta which is a measure of volatility. And so the concept there is that there's really two sources of risk in investing. One is what they call the systematic risk, and that's just the risk of being invested in the stock market. The stock market moves in a direction one way or the other. And the volatility of the stock market, which they define as beta. And so the single factor model of the capital asset pricing model was based on the fact that a stock would have a volatility either greater or lower than the volatility of the market as a whole. And the concept being that stocks with higher volatility would have higher expected returns and lower volatility would have lower expected returns. So that was an excellent tool, but people afterwards found that there were anomalies that couldn't be explained with that single factor model. Now, Greg, just before you go on, that single factor model, we discussed at some length in our diversification episode. Correct. Yeah, Yeah. you bet. So anybody that wants to listen to that one can go back and listen to that episode. That's right. So factors of return or factors of expected return go back to Roger Ibbotson and Rex Singfeld's work back in 1977, where they created a database of securities prices going all the way back to 1926. So this database actually became one of the most widely used investment databases. It was the first extensive and empirical basis for making asset allocation decisions. And I believe that was work done at the University of Chicago as well. And that data is called CRISP, an acronym CRSP, which is the Center for Research in Securities Prices. So back in 1981, a researcher named Rolf Banz worked on the size effect. He looked at New York Stock Exchange stocks from 1926 to 1975. And the findings were that smaller companies expected stock returns were actually higher than returns expected from larger companies. So this work was carried on in 1993 when Eugene Fama and Ken French 
published a work titled Common Risk Factors in the Returns on Stocks and Bonds in the Journal of Financial Economics. So this was an improvement on the single-factor asset pricing model that we just discussed briefly, the capital asset pricing model. And they identified different factors of return, those being the market as a whole, the size of a company, and value factors. So the size effect, again, where small companies have higher expected returns than large companies, that was confirmed in international markets back in 1995 with evidence that was written into a paper in the Journal of Empirical Finance called The Structure of International Stock Returns and the Integration of Capital Markets. Bit of a mouthful, but essentially just confirmation of the size effect in international markets. Now, normally we start these conversations with these are our opinions or these are our beliefs, but what you've just described, those are neither our opinions. Well, they are our beliefs, but they're not our opinions. They're evident. Exactly. So I guess, what does it all mean? I mean, there's been decades of work that's been done by people like Eugene Fama and Ken French, and we've mentioned Fama a number of times. And as I mentioned in another episode, we're going to mention him a lot because he's just done a lot for finance. Fama and French co-wrote another paper called The Cross-Section of Expected Stock Returns. And from this work came what's known as the Fama-French Factor Model. This is something that's studied by every finance student in the world, literally, any college-grade finance student anyways. We talk about how Eugene Fama is a pretty smart dude. He's a Nobel laureate. He won a Nobel Prize for his work on securities pricing. But Ken French is also a pretty smart dude. French is the Roth Family Distinguished Professor of Finance at the Tuck School of Business at Dartmouth College. That's a mouthful in itself. Previous to that, he was a faculty member at MIT, at Yale, and also at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. So the basis of this Fama French factor model is that there are different factors of return in different asset classes, and that when you include them in a well-built, well-diversified portfolio, you just give yourself a chance of a higher expected return than just random security selection. So in an article from the Investment News that was printed just last year, May of 2019, there's a big discussion on the importance of the evolution of factor-based investing. And we've been around this debate our whole careers, Greg. Well, that's right. And a little later on in the show, I want to talk about some of those things that came up early in my career in this business. Right on. I know before I carry on, just a funny story. I remember when we were at another company, another advisor came up to me. We were leaving. We were going to a conference. I don't remember the story. The advisor, who actually is no longer an advisor, made some comments to me. He said, where are you off to? I said, well, we're going to this conference. And he said something to the effect of, oh, one of those efficient market hypothesis guys, just put me in a room with them. I'll tear them apart. And how illogical it seemed to you and I to have this one-off advisor in Calgary saying he can dispute the claims of people like Fama and French and factor models and efficient market hypothesis. A little ironic for sure. It is. <laughs> However, the growth of factor-based investing is evident. It's everywhere. Every fund company is launching what they call factor funds. Smart beta. Smart beta, yeah, just another way of saying it. So there's a trend to include it in investment management, and we would support that trend as it just gives investors the chance of a higher expected return. But I guess there's also this debate that if you get into things like factor returns or factors of return and smart beta and whatever, and it's just focused on product, why do you need an advisor? And 
we would think people do need an advisor. I'm not sure we want to go there. (laughs) (laughs) But what it means to me is that there's also an evolution, not just in the investment management of should you be investing in individual stocks or bonds, but also there's been an evolution in what we do. That's right. And we talked about that when we talked about the evolution of advice, how our roles have grown from being just picking stocks to actually looking at the client's overall needs in terms of their goals and their retirement plans, education plans, that kind of thing, and then making the investments fit into those goals. So doing the planning and then using the products to try to achieve the outcome. This is where it all sort of comes together for me. It's almost like a marriage between expected returns from factor-based investing and goals-based planning, something that we subscribe to quite heavily. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about that old classic movie, Wall Street, with the fellows Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko. And I guess this idea of helping investors achieve their goals isn't exactly what Bud Fox and Gordon Gecko would have done. In the movie, Bud would actually call a reporter and use a code to let the newspaper reporter know what stock to headline in the next day's news. I don't know if you remember that line that he would say, but it was something like, Blue Horseshoe likes Anacott Steel, I think is a direct quote from the movie. You know, I suppose that would change these days to Blue Horseshoe likes asset allocation, diversification, and linking your investment outcome to your goals. Probably not exactly what Gordon Gecko had in mind. No, not exactly. And it wouldn't be a great line in a movie either at this point. So let's look at what some of these factors are. And I guess maybe we should talk about, well, why does anyone care? And I guess linking it back to where we started, we started talking about how in the early days, people like Benjamin Graham identified ways to analyze individual stocks by looking, doing fundamental analysis on them and trying to make sure that each company that they invested in had a margin of safety, meaning that they were trading at levels lower than their actual book value or net asset value. And that allowed them to capitalize on opportunities to buy stocks that were mispriced in the market. So these are value stocks. These would be value stocks, the way we would describe them now, and find mispricings in the market that would allow them to get an exceptional or a more Now, I won't say guaranteed, but a better return based on the fact that they had that margin of safety built in. So as we talked about as well, now with information about stocks and the kind of analysis that they did back in the 30s and 40s is now being done by tens of thousands of analysts around the world, any possible mispricings have largely been what they call arbitraged out of the market, meaning that those pricing anomalies have been eliminated and now as we talked about when we talked about efficient markets, the prices that stocks trade out are a reasonable estimation of their fair value. So why would we want to look at factors of return? Why are they important? Well, the research that was done starting way back with the capital asset pricing model, but more importantly than the research into small companies and value companies that we talked about, is that what we're trying to achieve is how can we then try to find types of stocks, maybe not individual stocks, but types of stocks that have higher expected returns. And that's what the research dwelt on. So when you look at stocks, there are certain factors that have been identified that allow you to expect a higher return from those investments. I guess the very first factor would be just the equity, the stock market itself, that there is a premium that you expect to earn by investing in the market. So you're rewarded for having an investment in stocks compared to cash or lower risk bonds. That's called the market premium or the equity premium. And it just means that when you invest in stocks, 
you expect a higher return. Otherwise, why would you invest in stocks Exactly at right. And it really is, in a sense, the fundamental basis of capitalism. And that is that if you take on more risk, you have a higher expected return. Otherwise, there would be no reason for taking that risk. So the market is the first factor. The second factor is size. And what that means is that smaller companies have higher expected returns over long periods of time than do large companies. Maybe just get into why that is. One thing would be that those small companies have the ability to grow more. And the second thing, it seems counterintuitive, but again, as we talked about reward or potential reward for taking risk, when you think about it, small companies are just riskier. Well, now, I guess every current large company started as a small company. That's exactly right. And so when you look at a group of small companies. And when we talk about investing in small companies, we're not talking about using fundamental analysis to try to find some new startup company, whether it's a tech company or a marijuana company or anything like that. What we're talking about is looking at the market and dividing the market into different groups of companies, some which have a market capitalization above the average and some that have a market capitalization below the average. And by investing in some of those smaller companies or in a large number of those smaller companies, you have a higher expected return, mainly because, as I said earlier, you expect to be rewarded for taking the risk of investing in those small companies. Another factor that was identified early on is a factor that looks at the price, the relative price of a company, its stock. And companies whose stocks are trading at low levels or lower multiples, let's say, relative to their book value, have higher expected returns than companies that are trading at higher multiples. That's an important point I just want to expand on a bit. Because oftentimes people will look at a stock that's trading at, let's say, $100 a share. And they'll say, that's an expensive stock. And they'll look at another one that's trading at, I don't know, $10 a share. And they'll say, well, that one's cheaper. But you're talking about relative factors. That's right. So when we talk about price, we mean relative price. And that is, if you look at all the companies in the market and look at their prices relative to their book value, meaning that if a stock is trading at $10 and its book value is $5, then it's trading at two times book value. Whereas another company might be trading at $10 and its book value could be $12, in which case it's about 0.8 and so on. And so when you look at the market as a whole and use Some factor of price, we typically look at price to book value, but it could be price to cash flow, price to earnings. There's a variety of ways to look at relative price. But price earnings is the one that is most commonly followed. Price earnings and price to book. And so when we look at price to book value, in general, companies that have lower relative prices, or price to earnings for that matter, lower relative prices relative to book value or earnings, tend to have higher expected returns over time. Now, keep in mind when I say expected returns, there's no guarantee that if you buy low price stocks or if you buy shares of small companies that you're going to get a better return. And that's why we always make sure we talk about expected return, because anything that was guaranteed, of course, will be trading at a much lower expected return overall. And then a more recent addition of factors that affect market prices and have higher expected returns are corporate profitability. And this is something that would be a lot more intuitive to a lot of investors. If you have two companies doing the same thing, operating in the same market or the same sector of the economy, and one company is more profitable than the other when it's all scaled, and so you're doing a strong comparison, then obviously the one with higher profitability would have a higher expected return. So that's pretty straightforward. Now, before you go on, we could also expand that out to 
this whole dividend myth, as we like to call it, from a corporate profitability stance. So you've got stocks that pay dividends and stocks that keep the cash in their retained earnings or companies. That's right. So one of them is distributing earnings to shareholders and the other one is investing in itself. That's right. And I think things like investing strictly for dividends can be a risky effort, as we've talked in the past, just because what happens is you end up becoming more concentrated in certain types of companies. So, for example, in Canada, the typical dividend companies would be bank stocks, utilities companies, telephone utilities, things like that. And you find that by investing only in those kinds of companies, you might actually end up being concentrated in companies, let's say, that are more sensitive to changes in interest rates. And so what we find is that the dividends themselves tend to get caught up in the value or corporate profitability factors and investing strictly for dividends is really unnecessary because you do capture those same expected returns through the factors that we've already identified. So I guess one question is, well, how does this bear out in the real world? And when you go back all the way using the securities prices back to 1926, as we talked earlier, let's say you invested $1 in the S&P 500. So the S&P 500 is the U.S. market standard benchmark or index for the U.S. market. No, that's, it's the 500 largest trading stocks. That's in the right. States. It's the largest 500 stocks that trade in the U.S. market. And therefore, you would consider it kind of a large cap benchmark. Large cap just meaning large capitalization companies, big companies. So when you look at a dollar invested in the S&P 500 from 1926 to 2018, that $1 grew to $7,025. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good return. That's about 10% a year over a period of 90 years. So I think we'd all be pretty delighted with that kind of return. Now, interestingly, if you look at a dollar invested in the small cap index, which would again be the lowest or the smallest companies of that group, not of the S&P 500, but of the rest of the market. So what you're talking about is in the US, I think the numbers are something like 4,500, no, is that right? 4,500 Around 4,000 stocks that are publicly traded. And if you take the smaller companies and look at the growth of a dollar to... 2018, instead of $7,000, which was the growth of a dollar for the S&P 500, the small cap index grew to $26,938. So that's a factor of almost four times what you earned on the S&P 500. And that's an annualized return of about close to 12%, 11.9%. And then if you break that down a little further and said, well, what if we just take the value companies within that small company group and look at the growth of a dollar, that dollar grew to $72,335 over the course of 90 years. Now, is that small cap value or that's just value? small cap value. And that's a 13.1% annualized return. So you can see, even though the S&P 500 provided very, very adequate returns, I think we'd all be delighted with 10% a year, instead of ending up with $7,000 from a dollar, you ended up with 72000 10 times the value. And so this kind of thing has been shown throughout the world to be consistent. And so you see the same thing in international stocks and you see the same thing in Canadian stocks. And that's, again, not our opinion. This is just evidence. Those are just numbers. That's facts. So how does that relate to fixed income? Well, actually, before we get in there, we should actually mention you're talking about four factors of return, the most common ones in equities, but there's lots of factors. I think there's been hundreds of factors that researchers have been looking at trying to 
figure out, well, how can we invest rather than just picking individual stocks? How can we use characteristics of companies to try to find higher expected returns? And literally, there's hundreds of factors that have been identified. What they found, though, is that many of those factors are already captured by the factors we've talked about, either the size factor or the relative price factor or the profitability factor. There is a factor. Momentum does seem to be something that seems pretty robust at this point, and that is that companies that have positive momentum in their share price, their share prices have been going up, they do tend to maintain that momentum for some period of time. And likewise, companies showing negative momentum do tend to show that same negative momentum. The problem seems to be, well, how do you build, how do you take that academic research and build a portfolio from it? And with momentum, it requires so much active trading that the extra costs of trading the portfolio so frequently would eliminate pretty much wipe out any extra benefit of trying to capture that factor. So that there is something there, but they haven't really figured out exactly how to build that into a real life portfolio. Well, I think we were in a conference setting and we were talking about momentum. And I do believe it was Fama himself who said momentum is like a ball rolling down a hill. It'll just keep rolling until it stops. Exactly. So let's just take a second and talk about bonds or fixed income. There are factors of expected returns with bonds as well. And those two factors are what we call credit quality and duration. So first of all, credit quality. This is just what is the credit of the issuer of a particular bond. So we know that government bonds tend to have very high credit quality. Typically, the government of Canada or U.S. government bond would have the highest credit quality because the governments tend to pay their debts. They do have the power of taxation. So if they need to raise money to pay back their debts, they can raise taxes or they can even print more money. And so, but credit quality talks about how credit worthy is the issuer of the bond. And as it turns out, well, of course, it's a little bit counterintuitive. If you want a higher expected return, then you would have to actually buy bonds with lower credit quality because they would be riskier and therefore have to pay the investor a higher interest rate than would be the case for high-quality government bonds. So government bonds tend to have lower interest rates, and riskier corporate bonds would have higher interest rates. But even outside of corporate, I mean, you can look at, I know years ago I had somebody come to me and say, why are we investing in these government of Canada bonds when we can buy Venezuelan bonds that are paying 10%? Well, sure. And then you do have to look at what's the risk of default. So Venezuelan bonds were paying 10% because they had to. Nobody would lend the country money if they were paying the same interest rate as a government of Canada or a U.S. government bond. And so there's a higher risk and you have to accept a higher risk of default if you want to capture the higher rate of return. And duration really just refers to time. And it's when you think about it, the longer the time until a bond matures, the more risk there will be of things happening like interest rate movements, which would change the value of the bond and so on. And so short-term bonds or bonds maturing in a very short period of time, one to three years, let's say, would have a lower overall risk than bonds expiring in 30 years. And so those would be the two factors of expected returns for bonds. So I guess the short-term bonds versus long-term bonds, you can think of as what's going on in the world right now with a global pandemic social unrest. I mean, these are real things. So if you have money that's in a longer term duration, it would have more of that risk built into it. That's right. Absolutely. So I guess, so what? I mean, what does it all mean? What it means to us is that many money managers and 
fund companies are starting to offer factor-based products, as we talked about. And it's based on the work that has been developed over the years. I mean, Greg, you mentioned in somewhere around 1963, the capital asset pricing model. 1981, the size effect was identified. 1991, the value or price effect was identified. And 2012, corporate profitability was identified as a factor. And there's always going to be new factors researched. But there has been this evolution of to identify an expected return based on factors, and it's led to further evolution in the investment management arena itself. And we've talked about pre-modern or Neanderthal times versus modern versus post-modern in a previous episode. So pre-modern would be the old conventional management where you're attempting to identify mispriced securities. It relies on forecasting to select undervalued securities. And we do refer to that as pre-modern or Neanderthal-like because it's there's been evolution since then. We've found fire. The second form would be modern times, which is more index-based, which is an improvement. It allows commercial indexes to determine strategy. It attempts to match index performance, restricting which securities to hold and when to trade. But there is an issue that comes into play when you're just investing in an index itself. So Greg, you mentioned the S&P 500. Yes. Well, you know, I know, but we're going to talk about it here. They do have a reconstitution date. And I can't remember if it's once or twice a year. I believe it's twice. So on those two trading days a year, they have to let the whole world know what companies they're going to be adding to the S&P 500 and what companies they're going to be removing from it. And so it's not a surprise. I mean, on that day, there's massive trading in any ETF or index that's tracking that particular index. And that can be an issue. And we'll talk about that further in another episode. But so now we've got postmodern or the alternate approach. And what we talk about here is that we're looking at academic research and gaining insight into how markets actually behave, structuring portfolios by using those dimensions or factors of returns that you talked about. And we truly believe, now this is our opinion, but there's also evidence to support it, that this does add value by integrating research into the portfolio structure, it does lead to a higher expected return. Yes. And it just sort of brings to mind one of the issues that active managers tend to bring up with response to the growth of indexing, where people just buy the indexes, they'll say, well, who just wants to get the index return? I want to beat the market. I want to beat the index. And I think what we've learned is that it's very difficult to beat the index if you're just picking individual stocks. But this factor-based investing actually allows you the opportunity to beat the index, assuming your definition of the index is the S&P 500. It gives you the opportunity to beat the index, not by picking individual stocks, but by looking at characteristics of stocks that are associated with higher expected returns. So that's why we do it. Exactly. Or exactamundo, as they say. (laughs) Well, let's wrap up here. That was a fun discussion on factors of return. And we're going to get into, what are we getting into next? I believe it's portfolio manager, historical performance, and style drift. And talk a little about market timing as well. Market timing is a good one too. Now for fun, let's just wrap up here with what have you been doing for fun these days? Well, our fun at my house, my daughter just arrived back home from Ontario and she arrived not alone, but with her boyfriend and her cat. And so we now have six people and six animals living under my roof. And so- This doesn't sound fun at all. We're learning to live with chaos but trying to keep things organized as best we can. So it's fun to have everyone around the house again, but it creates its own issues. <laughs> <laughs> well, for fun for us, it was our wedding anniversary yesterday. And hey, so happy anniversary. Thank you very much. We went out for dinner. 
That's the first dinner we've gone out to since, I don't know, March 1st? Yes. <laughs> that was fun. Anyways, for you. we'll wrap it up here. Thanks for joining us today on the free lunch. And we look forward to talking with you next week on some interesting items. You bet. We'll see you next week. All right. Till then. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. To subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc. 2020.